true to you. Figure out how to be true to you, how to return to yourself so that you can offer your best self to others. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we'll discover everything you wanted to know about Enneagram 2s from spiritual director, Felina Hertz. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker is here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Super happy to welcome you to the show today. You probably know this, but we are in a series called... That was a drum roll. For the love of the Enneagram, and it is so awesome. We're absolutely laughing at everybody's response to it. You guys are maniacs. You're listening to it, and you're sharing it, and you're listening to it twice, and you're sending it to your friends, and we're thrilled about it, because that is literally how much we love it, too. We're obsessed, absolutely obsessed right now. And today's episode, you're going to love it. Today in the series, we probably have on the most altruistic number on the entire Enneagram, which is the twos. Twos are known as the helpers because they are generally the ones who just roll up their sleeves and get stuff done. They are amazing at being doers and helpers and selfless givers, and they're incredible in their relationships and families. The twos are just, they make the world so, so, so lovely. And so, Joining us today to talk about this number is a two herself. I'm so happy to have on Felina Hertz today. Felina is, she's an author. She's a spiritual director. She's a yoga instructor, very passionate about spirituality and contemplation and making the world just more lovely. So in 2012, Felina and her husband, Chris, who, by the way, is the Enneagram expert we will hear in this series on the Enneagram 8 episode. Together, they founded an organization called Gravity, which is the Center for Contemplative Activism, which works to help restore and guide leaders who work in justice. They're just special people. They are so, so, so special. And today we get to unpack the two. And you've heard me say this, but I'm married to a two, so I'm always paying deep attention to when this conversation is on the table. And Felina, you will hear, you will find this, is so gentle, so dear, so warm, and so inviting. And she's so honest today. I mean, we're going to talk about the best parts of a two, the shadow side of a two, what the two is afraid of, what he or she needs and wants, what she has learned in her own work. And I think the twos out there, you're going to feel seen and heard today. You're going to feel understood. And for all of us who love a two, married to a two, work with a two, parent a two, this is incredibly, incredibly instructive. And I am thrilled to share my conversation with the absolute Absolutely wonderful Enneagram 2 Felina Hertz. Felina, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. This is your first time on the show, and that feels shocking to me. It's about time. Well, it's a total honor to be invited. Thanks, Jen. I appreciate it. Okay, first of all, I have backfilled my listeners in a little bit about who you are and and what you do, but I wonder if you could, as it pertains to this particular episode, walk us back just a little bit and tell us where you first heard about the Enneagram, when you first learned about it, when you decided, I'd like this to be a portion of my work even, where you kind of go from user to teacher. Can you walk us through that process a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I think it was 
maybe my early 30s when I was first introduced to the Enneagram. My husband was meeting with a spiritual director at the time, and he and his wife, they actually bought us the book, the basically the Bible of the Enneagram, the Enneagram Institute puts out. And uh, it had that diagram of the Enneagram on the cover. And my husband and I have a background in evangelical Christianity. And we took one look at the cover of that and we were totally weirded out by of it. Course. <laughs> and so we promptly returned it to the local bookstore. And then it found its way back to us. I think someone else gifted it to us. And we thought, okay, what is this thing? Maybe we should take it a little bit more seriously. And then a friend in Cambodia brought it into our conversation along the way. And once our friend kind of nailed Chris in terms of his type and started describing it, we thought, whoa, we really need to take this seriously. And so we took that, you know, we opened that book and we started learning about it. And then it was in 2007, my husband and I were gifted with a sabbatical from the organization that we'd been with. And I ended up in Albuquerque at the Center for Action and Contemplation where Richard War lives. And I was doing a private retreat and I was listening to Richard's audio teachings actually on the Enneagram. And he was describing the two. And I'll tell you, Jen, it just rocked my world. It was like major awakening. And it was like exposure to this part of me that I hadn't realized before. And it was actually really humiliating. And it kind of sent me into a tailspin. I ended up on the phone with my husband's spiritual director and his wife and really needed a lot of support to stabilize because who I thought I was, wasn't who I really am. Mm, Can you say a little bit more about that? Like what you were you bringing to the table when you were kind of confronted with the two you? Yeah. You know, I had this self image of being so selfless and so self giving, which, Mm -hmm. you know, the personality of the two presents like that. But as you go deeper into it, you realize you know, well, what happened to me was I realized how much of my life in terms of loving and giving to others was actually a pursuit of receiving some form of love. And so I came face to face with this part of me that didn't know that I am loved. And it was Ugh, devastating. Man, it's heavy. Yeah. So it was devastating, you know, to come into that vulnerability, but it was also humiliating as a two because... I realized, whoa, like I'm not so selfless after all. I have these unconscious motivations that are driving my so-called love. Yes. What you're saying, of course, is so familiar because you and I use different tools to get it, but I'm a three. And so that's my core need too. I just want to be loved. I do it, of course, with performance, which is ancillary to two. Sometimes service can be performative. For sure. So, I mean, I see the crossover there. It's either way, it's what we do. It's what we do to get what we need. When I read the three, it was just so humiliating because it was like laser focused, correct? And that's a gift. And it's a hard one. It's a hard gift to stare that in the face of what is so deeply buried under our motivations and our fears and our wants. And what's your wing? You're a two with a what wing? Well, you know, I tend to go back and forth quite a bit. And so I have different seasons of moving more in my three and then seasons of moving more in my one. It tends to play out or be most obvious in my profession, my vocation, 
the way that shows up. Yeah. Sure. I'm married to a two and he has a very strong one wing. But as we kind of talk about the Enneagram a lot in our marriage, we can also identify all the seasons where the three came out strong which is interesting that we actually do have access to both wings and it can be seasonal. It can be environmental. Suzanne was also, and also Richard said this, that what they've noticed in their lives since they're older than we are is that the older they got, they noticed that they were accessing the other wing more than when they were younger and building their careers and their families a little bit more in in that season of life, which I thought was really interesting because I'm three, two and don't identify a whole lot with a four. It feels like, is that my the future me? Am I going to be a little bit more four energy? I hope so. Fours are so wonderful and they show up for people in such amazing ways. They're so good at being in the moment with people. And I'm not good at that. I'm wondering if that develops in me. It's exciting. Okay, let's come back. So we've talked about a two a little bit, but I wonder, this is the two episode. So I was telling you earlier before we recorded that one thing I love about having you here is you have this incredible broad expertise with the Enneagram, which is great. And we're going to talk about a lot of that, but you're too. And so this is both professional and personal for you. So can you talk a little bit for everybody listening, talk more about the Enneagram too. What is that person? What does that mean? What are sort of the more or less the guardrails around an Enneagram two and what's under it? And then what do those behaviors kind of look like? What do we see on the outside of a two? Sure. So the twos are really known to be helpers, givers. They're very much relationship oriented. Relationships tend to be pretty primary for most twos because we're concerned about relationship. We want to be connected and we find that the way to do that is through helping and giving and figuring out how we can be of service in some way. The values of the two really revolve around you know, I know that I'm good when we're all good. Like I'm good if we're all good. So just kind of taking care of everyone. You know, they're, I mean, they do present as very self-giving, very concerned about others. And often it's difficult for the two to be aware of her own needs, his or her own needs, usually really dialed into other people's needs, but not so much our own. That can be a little bit of a blind spot and a growing edge. But interconnection is really important for twos, usually very relational. When the world doesn't feel under your control, you can control your habits. So one of the habits I have found helpful lately is making sure I am taking time to care for my body. The best tool that helps me keep up that habit is called Noom. You know that I love Noom. It's changed, really changed so many of my habits and transformed my relationship with food because Noom is based in psychology. So it helps me see why I make the choices that I do. And then Noom shows me how to replace those choices that are unhealthy for me with ones that serve me better. If I was going through quarantine without Noom, I 100% would have made so many more choices to just stress eat. And so it's been helpful to have Noom as this cheerleader reminding me to be mindful because how I show up for myself matters and I'm worth that. We all know that small steps make big progress. So sign up for your trial today at Noom. It's N-O-O-M dot com slash for the love. Do this for yourself. Visit noom.com slash for the love and you can start your trial today. All right. So noom.com slash for the love. All right. Back to our show. 
so what we end up seeing in a two is this, how can I help person? What can I do? Very springing into action at all times, paying attention to what somebody needs, how they can serve them. Can you talk a little bit more about the shadow side of that? You mentioned that a minute ago, and I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit about what's under some of that and and what it looks like really in health and what sometimes that can look like in disintegration. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like all the types, the two is very complex. And, you know, some of the teaching on the Enneagram focuses on, yeah, the shadow side named in terms of the vices or that sort of thing. So for the two, it's pride. That tends to be the the real struggle of the two, the kind of spiritual obstacle for the two is pride. And this is really curious because the way that it presented in my own life started out as self-abnegation. So I talk about this in my first book, Pilgrimage of a Soul, where I came to realize I've been self-abnegating most of my life, which is a complete denial of self in such a way that I'm just, and it's similar, it kind of looks similar to the nine in terms of self, self-forgetting, but it's so, yeah, it's like this complete denial of self, which was very confusing for someone like me who grew up in the church because I thought that was the way totally right to self-deny. What I came to realize was that I wasn't saying yes to my full potential as a divine being, really, you know, a, a divinely human person. And so I was denying my full capacity. And that was really a lesson in growing up and growing into who I really am and seeing my equality with my male counterparts. That was a big part of my story. So, Interesting. yeah, so this self-abnegation part of the two is, I think, really important for a lot of us to examine how am I not stepping into my full potential. Yeah, that's been a really important aspect for me. That's really interesting to hear you lay it out that plainly. And I'm curious as I hear you say that, when that became apparent to you, when you were confronted with the self-erasure, if you will, and you began the work of coming back to yourself, of even self-discovery, I'm curious if that created resentment in you toward all these people that you had been serving so diligently with such, you know, commitment, all the while feeling kind of erased inside of those relationships, whether or not they were doing or not, it's how you were doing to yourself. Did that create some turmoil for you? Oh, gosh, Jen, it was so, there was just so much upheaval when this started to occur in my life. And I see it as a feminine awakening that I went through. And so, you know, the way it kind of played out in my life, it was less about individuals and it was more about systems that I had grown up in. You know, why didn't the family, religious, social system I grew up in affirm me, you know, that sort of thing. And really like seeing how systems work to repress me so that I could serve the system in which, you know, that kind of erasure or self-abnegation really serves the dominant consciousness. I appreciate you saying that because when it comes to self-discovery, I'm always grateful for teachers who tell the truth that there is a cost and that sometimes disrupting 
all these narratives that we have either been just handed or that ultimately we became complicit in can really be disruptive. And even internally in your own brain and in your own soul, and that even then it is still worth the process. It's still worth the journey to kind of get through to the other side in a place of freedom and truth. But yeah, sometimes that self-awareness is really jarring and can come out sideways too to the people that we are living around. I must say in light of that train of thought that personally there was great cause. The cost of stepping into my essence really impacted my relationships because, see, they had grown used to another version of myself. And I think for twos in particular, you know, people really like the person that's kind of revolve, you know, letting, you know, they're just sort of revolving around the people in their life. Like that is a great benefit to folks. So when I stopped doing that, when I began breaking that pattern of compulsive behavior, it was kind of a shock to the relationships in my life. I'm just going to follow that train of thought because I wonder if you can make a distinction between in that journey, kind of self-discovery, stopping the compulsive behavior while still retaining the two that is in you, because that's your essence. You are a servant. And that is one of the ways that you come to life in the world. And that wasn't all pretend, you know, like that wasn't all just a complete put on. There is something in you that still deeply values that way of being like toward other people and with other people. So what's the difference between being a two who is operating out of just compulsive behavior and a two that is just being who she or he is in the world? Oh, beautiful. I mean, that's really astute to notice that fine line there. Yeah, the way that it's shown up in my life is the compulsive behavior that caused me to revolve around everyone else was this unconscious really deep need to know that I am loved. And this was the only way I knew to get some semblance of that sense of love, of being loved. So to break out of that pattern was really devastating to my system because it threatened the very experience of knowing I'm loved. Like if I don't do this for you, if I'm not this person for you anymore, will you still love me? And so it becomes this real wake-up call around who am I and who am I meant to be in the world? And if I truly show up in that essence, will I be loved? That's a lot of the questions that the two is asking, you know? And so it it does come at great cost and it comes with great risk. Is it possible to return to your essence in a way that even potentially looks similar, you know, where some of the behaviors are similar, but you are different inside? Is that the difference between healthy and unhealthy here? Yes, I think so. I think you're really onto something because the way it's played out in my life is that there is a liberation that I experienced not in suddenly not being helpful anymore. The liberation is around... I'm not doing this for you to get something from you. That's it. Okay. And so now there's just so much freedom to love and serve. It's no longer compulsion. I mean, we go in and out of these things. (laughs) And and so we're always contending with our vulnerability to operate from that place of, "Mm, am I loved? 
loved. I don't know if I'm loved. Like maybe I can go back into these behaviors that worked so well for me for so many years. But when we develop that inner observer, we can watch that more carefully and we can notice when we're getting vulnerable to that and then we can choose. And that's really the liberation, the freedom that we can experience is now I am able to choose. Whereas before I knew nothing different. You know, I was asleep to all of that. Oh, that is meaningful to me, even as a three, who, when I think about, like, I was a three when I was three years old, way before I kind of had a real clear understanding of what that was going to look like in the world. It's just the way I'm created. I have really big ideas and really audacious hopes for myself and for the world. And I have leadership capacity and I'm ambitious. And that's literally who I really, really am. But when I discovered how rewarded that behavior actually turns out to be in the world, then I can 100% chart seasons where it was no longer just operating out of truth, but rather the applause. And so it's real work to lay down, to really bring into alignment, what am I motivated by? Like, is it what am I doing this for? Is it because this is what I love? This is my work that I love and it's its own reward, you know, just to be in my skin and the way that I was created, or am I doing it for what I get? And so it's tricky. And I think I'm both of those things sometimes in the same day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't feel like there's a moment where I'm like, here's when I was really bad at this. And now I'm completely good at this. I just, I find myself in and out of both my inherent self, which has a great goodness all of us do to offer to the world and then just what it's getting me. It's so strange that sometimes our very best selves create a reward that then takes us out of our best selves. It's just what a weird thing. Yes. Jen, as you're talking, I'm remembering some of the work that I've done with a teacher named Marion Gilbert. And she's little known. I mean, she's not one of these big names. It's way out there. But she is one of, well, she's Chris and my favorite, really, Enneagram teacher. She teaches from a somatic-based awareness. I think she's really holding the future of Enneagram work as it's based in the body. There's very little of that that's really going on. She's on the front edge of all of this. But as you're talking, and, you know, as the two and a three were in the heart center triad of the Enneagram and my work with Marion, she's, oh my gosh, it's so powerful. Like she has helped me return to my heart and see what happened for people like us, like twos, threes, fours. You know, I'm not sure exactly how it is for the other triads in particular. I'm still learning, but definitely for the heart types, there is this moment sometime, who knows, did it happen at birth, before birth, sometime in early childhood? I don't know. But there was a disconnect from our heart. And so we reached outward away from ourselves to get that sense of connection. And when we find a way to return to our heart, and it's a very body-based thing, it's not some ephemeral kind of experience. It is body-based, like when we can come back to our heart, then those motivations that compel us to reach outward to get something and, and we're never satisfied. It's never fulfilled, right? Yeah, never. And it's such a tyranny, right? Of all of that <laughs> stuff present. out there that's calling for our attention. Yeah. When we can come back to our heart, that motivation, that false motivation really crumbles. There's no need because we found that reconnection. So 
for me, it's been really helpful to find ways and to identify ways and practices that help me return to my heart on a regular basis. I wonder if you could talk about those a little bit because you are a spiritual director, you are a yoga instructor, you are an author, you have this really incredible body of work inside contemplation. And so you have a lot of interesting tools and you just mentioned body work, which I think is a, sometimes a missing piece of this conversation. Can you talk through all these like areas in your life and what sort of tools and practices they have handed you and taught you to do that work of returning to yourself? Because I love that phrase and I'm not sure everyone knows how to do that. How do we even begin? Yeah, well, my primary work is around contemplative spirituality, and I define that through uh, practices of solitude, silence, and stillness. And these are practices that are largely amiss in our culture and even our religious upbringing often. And so practices that cultivate interior solitude, silence, and stillness have been particularly helpful because when I create some form of solitude, and this is really important for the two, to get away from all of the people in my life, because their needs are so, they can be so primary for me that I'm not able to get in touch with mine, which is getting, you know, I'm not able to get in touch with myself. Going into solitude, whether it's for 20 minutes or two days or seven to 10 days, whatever it is, those doses of solitude then really help me return to myself. And then I'm able to be more truly present to people rather than with those kind of unconscious motivations to try to get something unconsciously, you know, in return. And then silence, practicing forms of silence, cultivate this, you know, interior silence that helps me to listen to myself, to my needs, to what's going on in my own heart. And that helps me return to myself. And then practices of stillness really creates this capacity for deeper discernment around who I am in the world and what my work is to do so that it makes it easier when I re-enter in relationships and responsibilities to say, yes, this is mine to do. No, this is not mine to do. Yes, I will meet that need. No, I will not meet that need. That's not my need to meet. That's not my responsibility. You know, it just becomes clearer and clearer. So those kinds of practices are really crucial. And then a spiritual direction, having a spiritual director is huge for me. I meet with her monthly. The art of spiritual direction is something that's ancient, but has been quite hidden from mainstream until more recent years. And there are a lot of certified spiritual directors out there now. That's part of my work as well. So of course, as a two, I really enjoy the working with people like that. That's a wonderful helping kind of profession, you know? And so I love that, but I need to meet with my spiritual director because I also need help and I need people to tend to me. And then of course, therapy. I have a great psychotherapist, you know, I go through seasons of needing that kind of support. And then for the body-based work, yoga has been really important for me as a practice. And then I've, I've come to teach that as well. It's interesting, you know, as I'm reflecting with you, Jen, because it's like the very practices that have been so crucial for my own awakening and development end up being a lot of the same things that I end up 
offering others, you know, in terms of my vocation. Totally. It's like your interior knew what to even reach for. (laughs) They would become so integral to you. Suzanne explained to me that the twos, you know, you experience things through emotion and then stay in them. And that the threes also, of course, experience things initially through emotion, but very, very quickly pivot it to their minds where they can just think it through and solve it and fix it. And then of course, adjust to it and get over it. And I'm like, dang it. I felt like that was so rude and so on the nose. And that heart capacity is so special in the world, but it's very hard to internalize. Who do you want to be six months from now? It's a question I ask myself a lot these days. And if you are too, it might help to talk to someone who can help you see the forest for the trees. And right now, BetterHelp Counseling is here for you. So with BetterHelp, you can connect with a licensed professional counselor in a super safe and private online environment. They have more than 3,000 counselors who are trained to help in so many areas. Depression, anxiety, relationships, anger, grief, honestly, whatever you are carrying. Plus there's financial aid for those who qualify. So cost does not have to keep you from caring for your mental health. I just want a life of goodness for you. And so to help you get there, BetterHelp is offering all my listeners 10% off their first month. So to get started today at betterhelp.com slash for the love, join the more than 800,000 others taking charge of their mental health. So one more time, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, help, betterhelp.com slash for the love and get 10% off your first month today. Okay, back to our show. Let me ask you this because a ton of people are listening today who love a two, or they're married to a two, they're parenting a two, they work very closely with a two. How would you suggest that, what are some of the best ways that you as a two feels cared for, especially you are the givers in almost all of your relationships. That's just kind of your first bent, of course, obviously, as mentioned. And so what is it in your life that makes you feel seen and loved and nurtured and cared for? Well, Jen, I have to say the first thing that comes to mind is how you were with me last week when we were supposed to record the first time and you found out that I was having a setback with my brain injury and you said, we can totally reschedule. Let's reschedule. Like you made it so easy for me. And that made me feel really seen and heard and, you know, just really acknowledged and known and just like, it's okay to be you, Felina, with your limitations today. We don't have to do this today. You know, that kind of interaction with a two is so helpful, like acknowledging our vulnerability, acknowledging that we're vulnerable, and then acknowledging that we need connection and see the way the impulse of the two for connection is often, you know, I got to show up for you. So if you know that vulnerability of the two that were just wired that way, you know, then it's like, if you can be like, I'm going to show up for you and you don't have to show up for me right now. You know, that's so helpful. I have this thought around it in terms of acknowledging the needs of the two, affirming their goodness and appreciating their relationship to you. So acknowledging, affirming and appreciating the twos in your life goes a really long way. 
That is so incredibly helpful. I can't remember if I said this already. Oh, no, I did. I'm married to two. And so I do notice that there is one set of responses that feels more meaningful to him than another, which is there's a difference between saying, thank you for doing this thing, whatever the thing is he did, which is a billion things long. Our whole entire world would crumble without him in it. So, you know, thank you for handling that. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for managing that. And then there's a big difference in saying, thank you for like who you are. (laughs) Thank you for like who you are under that, under the behaviors, under the actions that you're doing. And I'm learning that with him too, for sure. So I think that's helpful because the twos don't ask for that a lot. At least that's not my experience. The twos in my life are very conditioned to shrug off some of that acknowledgement or pretend like they don't need it. Maybe I'm not sure if I'm getting that quite right. Yes. No, that is right. That's dead on. That's the uh, deeper part of the pride of the two, which we didn't go into too much earlier. We've talked a lot about the self-abnegation, but oh yeah, that's right there. Like we're happy focusing on your needs because we don't really want to see our own. It's kind of humiliating to acknowledge our own. So can you talk about that for one more minute about the pride piece And where that lives in you and what is it telling you all the time? Okay, let me just say the mantra that has helped heal this because it'll take me back to what I recognize that was a problem. So the mantra that helps me is I am no more, I am no less, I am enough. And so this part of me, this pride part of me, you know, fluctuates between I'm less than you or I'm more than you. And you can kind of feel that, I think, as a two, you can feel that disequilibrium, that when we're not centered, grounded, connected to our heart or connected to ourself, we haven't returned to ourself, then we're constantly being, you know, blown this way and that way around like, oh, I'm just like, we compare so much. We compare so much with other people. And so then we either feel less than or we feel more than, but that never satisfies, you know? And so it's like, if we can just settle in, come back to our heart, come back to ourself, then we realize I am no more, I am no less, I am enough. But the pride goes both directions, feeling less than or feeling more than. Interesting. Wow. Okay. That's useful. That's helpful. Let's talk about kind of the opposite question, which is when somebody is in conflict with a two, when there is something between the two of you and there's something to resolve, how can you advise that person? This is how to be in conflict with a two in a way that will reach him or her in a way that they can hear from you in a way that will really move you forward to resolution quicker rather than slower. Mm, Yeah. I think this comes back to remembering how important it is for the two to feel connected. That relationship is primary. So if someone's having a problem with me, my greatest vulnerability is going to be around disconnection of relationship. If you have a problem with me, you don't love me, you're going to leave me, you know, abandonment, rejection is a big deal for two. So anything that can reinforce, I value you, I value our relationship, I'm not going anywhere, you know, just kind of reinforcing. It's like when we can understand the vulnerabilities of the different types, I think we can be in relationship with one another with so much more understanding and compassion and mercy because yeah, I mean, life is hard and relationships are really difficult and we're not very skilled at really being in deep relationship with one another. Usually when things get too hard, we bail. 
So, so how can we be sensitive to one another's vulnerabilities and reinforce our connection with the two or our affirmation of the two when we need to work through difficulties? That's so good. And this is, again, one of the million places where the Enneagram is an incredible resource because I think the thing is inside a lot of conflict, it's not as if we are wanting to erase that other person or not. It's that sometimes we are wired so differently that how I am experiencing a conflict is not how you are. And the thing that I'm worried about in this moment is something completely different than what you're worried about in this moment. And so we end up like missing each other in it. And so the Enneagram is this like incredible mirror to hold up to ourselves, to hold up to our partners, to our relationships, and give us this incredible insight on what the other person is feeling and thinking probably, or at least near it. And inside of that knowledge, it's so possible to reach each other. It's so possible to understand what you need, what I need, and hand that to one another in a way that might not just be instinctive, simply because that's not how I think. And I know that's not how you think or whatever. And so the Enneagram has been a tool for us in that greatly. And I appreciate you saying that it just this might not be natural. This might take some work and that's okay. Everything good does. Let me ask you about this. Speaking of kind of relationship and conflict and even just like thriving with two people inside one space. Obviously you are a two. Chris, your husband, he is our incredible guest for the Enneagram 8 episode. Can you talk about some of the both high points of a 2-8 marriage and the pressure points of a 2-8 marriage. Yeah, yeah, this is so important. I was just thinking of our relationship as you were talking about how important the Enneagram has been to navigating relationships with people. And I think we tend to see the world through, you know, our own lens and we forget that people are different from us. And in my marriage with Chris, it couldn't be more different. It's like, I think of the high points, I'll get to the low points, I guess, but the high points are around like, he's really wired to be more of a protector where I am more of a nurturer. And that protective nurturing dynamic can work really well together. So it can almost be seamless, like kind of a hand and glove type of relationship. But interestingly, in the ways that we're different, the low points actually revolve around that those same paradigms. Yep, so the eight goes into self-protective mode, which goes into more of an autonomous mode. You know, as a two, I go into this self-nurturing, like I've got to take care of my own self. And so when we're in like conflict and there's tension, it's easy for him to go into self-protective. And then I have to go into self-nurturing. It's like, He's not getting the protection from me that he needs because he's the protector and I'm not getting the nurturing that I need from him because I'm the nurturer. And it's like, we actually need the other to be for each other. What comes most easily for our own self. I see what you're saying. And then it's just this process of coming back together of kind of laying down those protective shields, which is so vulnerable it is just so incredibly vulnerable, but possible. Yeah. So it possible. Is. When we realize, oh, he's going into self-protective mode. That's not a rejection of me. He needs something that he's not getting. So how can I kind of get eyes off of my own self? You know, we're so self-preoccupied. 
when we can really, you know, look and understand, oh, this is the vulnerability of, you know, the eight or whoever it is. And they're not wired the same way that I am. But we're such tender creatures that we don't tend to first think of the other and their experience. We take it more personal, you know, when it's not meant to be personal. It's like the other one is actually hurting too. Oh, that's so good. Let me ask you this one last question before we wrap it up. For the twos out there that are listening, and I think I have a lot of twos in my community. I have attracted a great number of twos. You're so lucky. I know. I say it all the time. (laughs) I love the twos in my life. They're just magical. And they just make our communities beautiful, our families and homes beautiful. You're right. I feel so lucky. With the twos listening right now, let's just say they're listening and they're really interested in this path. They are interested in growth. They're interested in their own personal sort of healing and embracing this bit of who they are and how they can be who they are in the healthiest possible way, specifically through the lens of the Enneagram. Could you give them a piece of advice? Like if you're speaking to the twos who are like, oh, I want to be healthy and grow. What would be the thing that you would say? Yeah, first and foremost, be true to you. Figure out how to be true to you, how to return to yourself so that you can offer your best self to others. What you're offering might not be what they want or need. And that's really critical. Like it might not be what they're asking for, but when you are true to you, when you return to yourself, you can offer your best to others, which actually might be not meeting their needs. And that may create space in their own life to do some growth that they need to do. And that's really critical, I think, for the two, because twos can be rather smothering and we can get in the way of other people's development and work because we'll just do everything for them. And so being true to ourselves allows us to really offer our best to others, even if that means we don't give people what they're asking for. Mm, That's great. What a great place to start and what a great thing to say. No two families are alike. Some routine might work for one family and for another, it may fit like a t-shirt that shrunk in the dryer. And that's okay. So listen, if you've been wondering about how to take charge of your kid's education without having to do it all alone, then you should check out Laurel Springs. Laurel Springs is an accredited online private school for students K through 12. And they recognize that each kid has his or her own interests, talents, and learning style. So Laurel Springs has a flexible learning program that offers a wide array of courses. Plus, Laurel Springs is accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and Advanced Ed, which means their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Right now, you can register your child at laurelsprings.com slash for the love and receive a waived registration fee. Pretty cool. So that's laurelsprings.com slash for the love for your waived registration fee. It's L-A-U-R-E-L, by the way. So take the leap into online schooling, laurelsprings.com slash for the love. Okay, back to our show. Okay, these are like three questions that we are asking everybody in the Enneagram series. Here's the first one. If you could choose, let's just say for a day, let's not say you want to personally transplant, but let's just say for a day, you got to morph into a different Enneagram number. Which one would you choose? 
This is interesting. It's really telling. For me, it's the four. You mentioned the four earlier. It's like I would choose the four because I find fours to be so beautiful. They attract beauty. They exude beauty. They're so creative. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out some of the teaching of the Enneagram says that the two in our healthiest state turns to the four, that we take on more qualities of the four, that some say the four is the soul child of the two. It's who we were before we disconnected from our heart. So yeah, that's that would be it for me. I love that. What a, like a wonderful side energy to grab onto. Like I completely agree. The fours are so wonderful too. Just as wonderful as the twos. Okay. The flip side of that question, what part of your specific Enneagram two personality do you enjoy most about yourself? I think it's my disarming nature. I think I have disarming nature. I hope that's true. (laughs) And warmth. Like I think there's this part of the two in me that just puts people at ease and can allow them to be seen and known and heard. And I really love that. Mm, I know that is such a good quality. Everybody wants to be safe and loved in this world. And so the people that walk into a room and just immediately make you feel that you are safe and you belong and everything's going to be okay. It's such a gift, especially now that two energy is so special and so profoundly powerful in the lives of the people around them. And so I thank you for what you bring to the table. Last question. This is Barbara Brown Taylor's question. Everybody gets it every episode, every series. Answer it however you want. What is saving your life right now? Oh, gosh, I don't even have to think twice about this one. Nature Adventures with Chris and my puppy Basil. Every weekend, we're getting out in nature, we're reconnecting, you know, with our environment. And it's like, Nature's reminding us who we are. When Chris was on a couple of years ago, he said Basil. So Basil's obviously a key player in the household. And that tickles me, just tickles me. Okay, so, you know, I have followed you and listened to you and watched you for years, Felina. And I find your work and presence in the world so soothing and kind and compassionate and inviting and that is just special. It's kind of rare and it's wonderful. And when I think about all the people who are finding growth and healing and restoration under your very good and capable wings, I'm just proud of you and I'm thankful for you. And so thanks for coming in here today with your soul and your truth and your vulnerability. I think it's going to serve so many people and I'm grateful. Mm, Thank you, Jen, for saying that. It's very generous of you and so kind and very affirming. All the things that I need as a two. Mm, Yes, yes. (laughs) She sees me. Uh, (laughs) Okay, my friend, sending you all my love to both you, Chris, and Basil. Uh, Thanks. Take good care. And now, to tell us more about the music you've been listening to in this episode, we hear from composer Ryan O'Neill a.k.a. Sleeping at Last, about the inspiration behind this piece. When I began writing the Type 2 song, I knew that it had to be warm and welcoming. I knew that the cello in particular would play a huge role in communicating the heart of the Type 2, because in my opinion, the cello is the kindest of all instruments. It just sounds like the musical equivalent of a Type 2. But I didn't want the song to feel overly sweet because uh, the more I dug into learning about the type two, the more I saw that they are 
of course, these warm and incredibly giving people, but they are so strong and so powerful. The more I learned about the health and the letting go of the type two, I recognized that a key concept here was unconditional love. At their best, they are capable of this powerful, unconditional love for others once they have that love for themselves and a love without strings attached. Because that felt so important, I decided that every instrument in the song should be a stringed instrument. So there's cellos, violins, guitars, pianos. So I was deeply blessed to be raised by a type two. My amazing mom is a two, and it was a wonderful challenge to try to write something in hopes of honoring her specifically, but also to honor every type two. My hope for this song was to remind type twos that they are so powerful and that they are a gift to everyone that they love, and also to gently remind them that they are able to love even better when they let themselves receive the same level of care and nurture that they are so freely giving to others. I loved that conversation. My brain was just churning and churning and churning and churning. I'm going to have everything Felina Hurts represented over at jenhatmaker.com. That's where the podcast page is. So we've got the transcript. I'll have all of her books and her work and her everything you can discover about her as a spiritual director all, all over there. One stop shop, including our social media spaces. And I can't wait for you to hear from her husband in Enneagram 8 episode. Next week, everybody come on back. You're not going to want to miss it. I don't care what your number is. You want to hear all these. Next week, we turn our attention to the Enneagram 3s, which is the number of yours truly. I can't wait for you to hear the conversation. It is so raw and honest because I am talking next week to fellow Enneagram 3, Lisa Welchel. You probably, of course, remember Lisa. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them all and there. You had the facts of life. Apparently, this is the outro where I sing. And she has done a ton of work around the Enneagram and a lot of training. And I just felt like I was talking to my counterpart. Isn't it something, isn't it amazing to feel seen when somebody like really understands what's under everything you say, think, and do? They really get you. They get your your heart. It's so magical. And I think that's why everybody loves this series because we are able to see one another and we are holding up these Enneagram types. And it's just so nourishing to see ourselves reflected in them and understand that other people know who we are and get who we are and love who we are. And so just come on back. I'm telling you, every single episode is fire. All right, you guys, next week, Enneagram three time. Love y'all. See you next time. 